Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to your name, Father. I pray that as we examine your text this morning, that the truth would be evident to us, Lord. I know this is a difficult topic. It's one that we have struggled with, all of us, on some level. So, Father, I pray for clarity, for understanding, for grace and mercy. And, Father, I pray that as we learn the truth of your word, that you would give us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to delve right into this this morning because we've got an awful lot to cover. This is week 5 in our sermon series that we've entitled Upside Down, and we're calling it Upside Down because it's a study through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Study on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a teaching that Christ, as he instructs his disciples, and as we think through what he says, calls us really to live upside down. He calls us to be different. He calls us to make decisions that the world wouldn't necessarily make. And so we're going to continue over the next many weeks to study this and delve into this. And my prayer all along is that you will be convicted by it, that you will be challenged by it, that the Lord will speak to you in in some mighty and powerful way. I want to continue to encourage you. One of the things that we've done for you each and every week is provide you with a family devotion guide. Moms and dads, I'm going to encourage you to spend some time picking one of these things up, reading through with your kids. It takes maybe 30 minutes. We spend one night a week, maybe 30 minutes. The kids love it. They look forward to it. It's an opportunity for you to talk with your children about the things of Christ. We're encouraging you to memorize the Beatitudes. I hadn't forgotten. It's in my notes. I hadn't forgotten. I'm going to ask a couple of families at some point in the near future to get up here and say it. So you be challenged and encouraged to do that, to study that, to memorize that with your children. Last week we covered a topic that I said before I began was a very difficult one to discuss. It was the topic of adultery and murder. And we saw in our study, Christ's teaching last week, that anger of the mind is the same as murder. And lust of the heart is the same as adultery. But as difficult as those two topics were to discuss... As difficult as those two topics were to cover, I believe that today's topic is even more difficult. Because in our context today, Christ is going to speak about divorce. One of the more difficult matters that any person could ever face. Now, I have to be honest with you. I had intended, as I scheduled this thing out several months ago, to preach through verse 37 of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. But as I got into my study Monday morning and I began to pray through it and think through it, I began to recognize that there's just so much we need to talk about and so many things that I need to say that I feel like the Lord wants us to understand that I'm just going to focus this morning on Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read that together. I think we have the passage on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus Christ is up on the mountain. He's already walked through the Beatitudes. He's talked about salt. He's talked about light. He's talked about anger. He's talked about murder. Now he's going to challenge us with this idea of divorce. Matthew 5, verse 31 says this. It has been said, and again, these are the words of Christ, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32. 
But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a truth that I'm going to explain to you now that we're going to build on that I think is kind of the foundation for all Christ is saying. I spent a lot of time this week just praying through this. And one of the things I do at the beginning part of my studies, I try to figure out how am I going to divide this text up and pull out the truth that the Lord wants us to hear, the truth that the Lord wants us to understand, and how can we begin to apply that to our lives. And as I prayed through it and studied through it, I came to one kind of simple conclusion that I'm going to use as our foundation that we're going to build on as we move through this study. And here's the truth that I want you to get this morning. Number one, if you are married, God desires for you to stay married. Now, that may be obvious to some of you. It may be a little more challenging to others. But I think as we dissect this truth, as we try to understand exactly what the Lord is teaching, there's a very clear pattern that runs throughout this passage. It runs throughout a passage in Matthew 19 that I'm going to reference in a few minutes. It runs throughout a pattern of Genesis chapter 2 that I'm going to reference a little bit later. And it's this pattern that if you are currently married, the Lord calls you to stay married Period. And you can underline the word stay if you want to, if you're taking notes. Now, divorce is a major problem in our society, as we're all aware. In fact, if you look at statistics, most statistics tell us that between 40 to 50% of all marriages will end in divorce. Now, divorce is very difficult because it affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. It affects us spiritually, it affects our families, it affects our children. And I'm not going to go around the room and ask this question, but I'm confident that if I asked every person in this congregation, have you been divorced, or do you know someone or related to someone who has been divorced, every person in this room would say yes. Divorce is an issue that affects everyone. And so we come to this place in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is speaking to his followers He's speaking to his disciples, and he begins to address this issue. And it's interesting because when you study it, I don't know how many of you have your Bibles, but if you have your Bibles like mine, there's a little heading above verses 31 and 32 that say divorce. I know you can't see it from where you are. Most of your Bibles probably have that heading as well. But the more I study this, the more I pray through this, I'm more and more convinced that Christ's focus in this particular text in verse 31 and 32 isn't divorce, even though he uses that phrase and speaks about it. I believe his focus instead is staying married. Now he's going to give us one exception about divorce that we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. But I think the bulk of what he's trying to say to us, the foundation of his message to us, is that very simply, if you are married, you need to stay married. That's God's desire for you. Now, Jesus has begun each one of these passages in the fifth chapter with a little phrase, you have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said. And he divides the end part of chapter 5 into kind of six different ideas here. Murder and adultery were the two last week. Divorce is this one. But if you notice in verse 31, he begins with this phrase, you have heard it said, or it has been said. And there's this idea that Christ is looking back at the Old Testament law. Now, I want to spend a few minutes this morning making sure we understand exactly what the Old Testament law said, but more specifically what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the first century were teaching in the presence of Jesus. Now, for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the first century, they had kind of taken the Old Testament law and they'd done what they did on so many occasions, they had changed it. They had basically made it a legalistic document 
And they were way more interested in the letter of the law than in the spirit of the law. And so at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees in particular were teaching that you could get a divorce for even the smallest of things. Minuscule, minute, insignificant things gave you in the first century the right, according to these Pharisees, to be divorced. Now I want to read from you, read for you one scholar that explained it like this. He said, Judaism recognized the concept of a no-fault divorce thousands of years ago. It's always accepted divorce as a fact of life, albeit an unfortunate one. Judaism generally maintains that it's better for a couple to divorce than to remain together in a state of constant bitterness and strife. Under Jewish law, a man can divorce a woman for any reason or for no reason. The Talmud, which was a specific part of Jewish teaching, specifically says that a man can divorce a woman because she spoiled his dinner or simply because he finds another woman more attractive. And the woman's consent to the divorce is not required. Now, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian and wrote, and some of you men are looking at your wife, quit looking at your wife when we got to the burning dinner part. Just look, focus on here, focus up here. You do things wrong too, we're moving on, right? Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, lived and wrote in the first century, said this. He said that the Jewish law and the Pharisees at that day, in that day, taught that a man could divorce his wife, quote, for any cause whatsoever. All that had to happen in the first century was a certificate of divorce had to be offered. Now, we see this come into play in Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to reference it again in a few minutes. I'm going to ask you to look at it. But Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're trying to trick him. And here's what they say. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Remember, the Pharisees were trying to trip up Jesus. They were trying to look for an excuse to crucify him, to arrest him. And so they come to him and they challenge him with this question. Lord, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's interesting to me. Because as we study the context of the first century, and we see that in the first century the Pharisees taught that a person could be divorced for any and every reason, it's interesting to me because that's the context in which Jesus was preaching in the first century, but it's the same context in which he's preaching to us today, isn't it? Because you may or might may not have tied these two together, but we still live in a culture that teaches you can get a divorce for any reason. Now, you've heard the stories, you've heard the excuses. I did some research, and all 50 states now allow what's called a no-fault divorce. A no-fault divorce very simply means we don't even have to come up with a reason for divorce. We can just say we don't want to be married anymore. And in all 50 states, that's now a legal reason for divorce. So, for example, you could say, I'm just tired of my spouse, therefore I'm going to get a divorce. You could say, well, we've had a lot of disagreements, therefore I'm going to get a divorce. You could say, I've found someone better or more interesting or more attractive, therefore I'm going to get a divorce. You could say, there are just some things about my spouse that I don't necessarily like, therefore I'm going to get a divorce. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And it's into this culture of easy, acceptable divorce that Christ speaks. But I want you to notice what he does here. This is very interesting. Into this context of simple, easy divorce, Christ is going to turn their understanding of what divorce ought to be upside down, right? So he says in verse 31, pull that back up if you don't mind, please. 
It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Here's what he means. In other words, you've been taught that you can divorce for any reason. You've been taught that any reason is acceptable for divorce. All you've got to do is hand over a certificate of divorce. Now, verse 32, look how he begins. But, I tell you, right, there's going to be this contrast. You've been taught this. This is what the world says. This is what society says. It's okay as far as they're concerned. But, he says, I'm going to tell you something very different. In fact, he says in verse 32, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there are different words that different translations use. The NIV uses sexual immorality. King James uses fornication. But I want to show you something very interesting here. If you're studying in the original language, verse 32, that word for sexual immorality, the Greek word, I want you to listen to this, is pornea. P-O-R-N-E-I. It's the same word we get pornography from, right? It's this idea of sexual sin. Christ says, the world has said to you, you can be divorced for any reason, but I'm going to tell you that the only legitimate cause for a divorce is sexual immorality or adultery. And let me just tag something to this. There is no scripture that says to you, even in the case of adultery, that divorce is mandated. There are plenty of couples who have gone through this difficult time in their lives and have come out with grace and mercy and love and a marriage that has endured. So Christ says there is one exception, but even in that one exception, it's not mandated. So here's the bottom line. Christ says if you are married, unless sexual immorality occurs, unless adultery is committed, you should stay married. Now this is upside down for much of the world, isn't it? Because much of the world that we live in, much of the society that we live in says divorce is okay, it's acceptable, people just grow apart. It's okay to find somebody else that's going to make you happy. You can have irreconcilable differences and it's okay. Christ says, and I want you to watch this, none of those are acceptable reasons for divorce. None of them. That's a very difficult teaching, isn't it? That's a hard thing for us to understand. It's difficult for us because some of us have been involved in this situation. Some of us had children and grandchildren that had been involved. I had a conversation after the 8.30 service. I'd finished preaching just this morning. A lady pulled me aside, tears in her eyes, and she said, you know, my daughter was divorced 12 years ago, and we still struggle with it a decade later. A decade later, it still brought tears to this lady's eyes. It's a very difficult teaching for us, but Christ wants us to understand Christ wants us to see in a context, in a culture where people are preoccupied with the grounds of divorce, Jesus is preoccupied with marriage. And his intent, I want you to listen to this, is that no matter what, your marriage should stay intact. Now let me speak through some truth here. Here's what that means. If you are currently married, as we've already said, you should stay married. If you have been divorced... And remarried, you should stay married. You may have had trouble in the past. You may have made mistakes in the past. You may have committed sins in the past. But that's in the past. Once you enter into a marriage, you are required by the teaching of Scripture to maintain that marriage. To seek the Lord. To fulfill the vows within that marriage. Here's another truth. And this one's going to hit home for a lot of you. 
If you are struggling in marriage, you should get help and stay married. Now let me just say to you, and I'm not, I'm not talking to any particular person right now in this congregation. If you're struggling in your marriage, you are not alone. Trust me. The vast majority of people that struggle in their marriage do it behind closed doors. And it always breaks my heart when people come into my office to talk to me about marriage and they say, you know, this has been going on for four or five years. Why didn't you get help? There's no sin in a marriage struggling. Every marriage struggles on some level. Don't allow that to get to the place where you can't solve those problems. Don't allow it to get to the place where you feel hopeless and helpless as if you can't move on. Because Christ says, I want you to understand as he preaches this truth to these disciples, there is hope in your marriage. God's design for you in your marriage is to love and be faithful and to find joy and contentment in the context of marriage. And so instead, for the next little while, of focusing on this idea of divorce, there's only one reason that Christ gives as a reason for legitimate divorce. Instead of thinking about divorce, I want to look at all the reasons we should stay married. Because I think that's the truth of what Christ is getting at here. You've been taught, he says, there's all kinds of reasons to get divorced. I'm telling you there's only one reason to get divorced, and even then you don't have to do it. So there are a few reasons according to the Pharisees, but there's only one reason according to me and according to my teaching you can be divorced. There are infinite reasons why you should stay married. And so we're going to delve into this just for a few minutes. I don't usually, many of you that have been at this church for a couple of years, flip around in Scripture. But I think there's so many solid places in the Word of God, so much teaching related to marriage that I want to flip around just for a minute. So if you've got your Bibles, flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. I think we're going to have these on the screen as well if you don't have your Bibles. <clears throat> Not everything we need to know about marriage is contained in Matthew chapter 5. So Genesis chapter 2, let me just give you a little bit of context. The Lord has created the heaven and the earth. He's created Adam, but he recognizes something very interesting about Adam in Matthew, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, here's what the Lord said. He's speaking to Adam. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Here's a little side note. When I asked Amy to marry me, I read her that verse. <laughs> Bible said it's not good for a man to be alone, right? So... I'm looking for a suitable helper. So the Lord looks at Adam and Eve. That's what I was doing, right? I'm just fulfilling the truth of Scripture. My name happened to be Adam. I thought that was a neat little tie, and it worked. Four children later, it worked, right? So the Lord says, not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for you. So he looks, and he starts thinking about some of these animals, and there are other kind of things that he thinks. But there's no suitable helper. Nothing can be found. So skip down now to verse 21. So the Lord God calls the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. And he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and he said, This is now, the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, there's some truths in this little scripture that I want to draw out very quickly that I think you need to understand. Why should we stay married? We should stay married, first of all, because marriage was God's idea. He instituted it, not man. Marriage was God's idea. I think we've got that on the screen if you'll pull it up so they can see it. Marriage was God's idea. He instituted it, not man. 
Now, from the very beginning, the Lord realized that there was not a suitable helper for man outside of his creation of woman. So you get this sense from the beginning of creation that God designed marriage to happen. Now, let me just say as we think through this, there's a lot of division in our society today about what marriage is, right? There's an awful lot of discussion in our world now about what is a marriage, what constitutes a marriage. But as followers of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you, we can only define marriage as the Scripture defines marriage. And the Scripture is very clear. Marriage has always been between one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24 explains that to us. That's why a man, that's singular, leaves his father and mother is united to his wife, that's singular woman, and they become one. There's this sense here that marriage is between a man and a woman, and when they leave their respective families, they're not distancing themselves from their family, they're not doing away with their family, they're just saying, I'm no longer part of this family as much as I am a part of this family. When they leave their families, the two men, the two men and women, the the man and the woman, become one flesh, they're joined together. Now, I don't want to talk through for much time this morning. I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking through what this ought to look like. I don't want to spend it. Y'all are laughing because I said two men. I know. I'm sorry. I see, the, I see the expressions. We'll edit that out, Larry, wherever you are. As I'm defining the biblical example of a man and a woman. One man, one woman. Moving forward, right? Okay, moving on. I'll laugh and I'll listen to it later today, too, I promise. God has instituted for us very clearly what this ought to look like. Now, I just want to warn you, okay? This view is not popular. It's becoming less popular. And it's very interesting to me when we read these Beatitudes and the Lord says, you know what, there are going to be times when you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. I just wonder if this is one of those times for believers. Because I think that persecution is coming. I think the more we stand behind the truth of the Word of God... And the more we stand behind what he teaches, and the more we live our lives based on that truth, the more persecution is going to come, right? So we see very clearly that he's given us this picture of what marriage ought to look like. He's given us this picture from the beginning of how it ought to happen, who ought to be involved, why it's important, right? But now let's flip, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to have this one on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 19. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this text, but the Pharisees have come to Jesus. They've questioned him again about divorce. And they ask him this question that tries to trap him. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 says this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? All right, there's the question we talked about a minute ago. Here's Jesus' response in verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning... The Creator made them male and female, and He said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's another truth. Not only was marriage instituted by God at creation, not only was His purpose for one man and for one woman, but the second thing we see in this passage in Matthew chapter 19 is that marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. Now, Jesus uses some pretty strong words here in Matthew chapter 19. He says that a husband and wife are to leave the father and mother. They're to be united as one. And one commentator said it's more than just coming together physically. It's like being glued together. I like that phrase. 
There's an emotional, there's a spiritual, there's a physical sense to this. They become one flesh. John MacArthur summed it up like this. I think he said it well. In marriage, God brings a husband and wife together in a unique physical and spiritual bond that reaches to the very depths of their souls. As God designed it, marriage is to be the wielding of two people together into one unit. The blending of two minds, two wills, two sets of emotions, two spirits. It's a bond the Lord intends to be indissoluble as long as both parties are alive. Now let's think through that just for a second. If God instituted marriage at creation, and he did. If God called marriage to be one man and one woman, which he did. If God called marriage to be for life, which he did, then that means marriage should take place and should remain in good times and in bad, right? If it's for life, we have to affirm that. Marriage should remain when you're rich and when you're poor, right? We should affirm that. Marriage should remain in sickness and in health. Marriage shouldn't simply remain only when you feel like it. Now, I did something interesting in 830 service. I asked for all the couples that had been married over 30 years to raise their hand. And there were quite a few couples that raised their hand. They'd been married over 30 years. Then I asked them a real simple question. I said, if you've been married over 30 years, I want you to listen to something. I want you to answer a question for me. If you can say to me that in your 30 years you've never had a moment of strife, you've never had an argument, you've never had one moment where you disagreed, I want you to raise your hand. You know what happened in that congregation? It erupted in laughter. <laughs> they all understood that there's no possible way you can live in a marriage without strife. They understood you can't live in a marriage without quarrels. They understood you can't live in a marriage where everything is perfect. But here's what they do understand. In all their years of marriage, they figured out how to make it work, didn't they? They figured out how to provide grace and love and mercy. And they figured out how to get along. And they figured out a long time ago that they can't base the decision on whether to stay married simply by how they feel. Because I promise you, if you're going to make a decision about marriage based on how you feel, it's not going to last long. So Christ says, I instituted marriage. It's from the beginning. I've called you to separate from your families, come together as one flesh. I've called you to stay together for life. What the Lord has brought together, let not man separate. Here's the third truth I want you to understand. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Now flip over to Ephesians. <clears throat> Again, we're jumping around a little bit, but there's some awfully good passages that I just don't want to miss the opportunity of talking about this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. If you want to know what the model Christian home ought to look like, you ought to memorize Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I begin here always. This is always our first counseling session. We're going to read through Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. You're going to go home as a couple and dissect it and think through it and talk about it and pray about it. You're going to come back in several weeks. We're going to talk about it some more. Why? Because it gives us a picture of what marriage ought to look like. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it. You can read through it, but it begins with the, the wife submitting to the husband in 22, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. By the way, men, that means everything. Giving up everything for her. And now look at verse 23, 22, excuse me, 32. Paul says, this is a profound mystery. In other words, I don't really understand this, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you 
must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, if you were to read through this and really study through this and begin to make notes about all the things that Paul says here, you would see this is a picture of a biblical home. It gives roles and responsibilities. It calls us to love one another. It calls for respect. It calls for grace. It calls for mercy. It calls us to sacrifice. All those things are found in that text. But Paul says that the bottom line here, kind of the foundation at the very end, more importantly than all those things, your marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. So here's what that means. If you live a marriage that's honoring to the Lord... If you live a marriage that shows that you love each other, that you're respectful for one another, that you're interested in doing the things of the Lord, guess what's going to happen? Other people are going to notice and you're going to glorify the Lord. I want you to think just for a second about that couple you know who's been married 40, 50, 60 years. You know those couples. You see them and if you're married like me, you kind of marvel at that, right? I mean, those people have been married longer than some of us have been alive, And you think about what that must take and how they must live. And then you talk to them and you see the way they interact with one another. And you see how they love one another. And if you're like me, you begin to notice, you know, it's kind of like Christ and his church. See, Christ says, I'm going to come and I'm going to give myself for my church. I'm going to do everything for the church. I'm going to love her. I'm going to sacrifice for her. I'm going to ultimately give my life for her. And when we're in a marriage that is wrong and unbiblical and sinful and eventually leads to a divorce. Here's what we're saying to the world. Christ doesn't truly love his church. He's not truly going to sacrifice for her. He's not truly going to give for her. Paul says if you'll live your life, if you'll conduct yourself in marriage, living for me, following me, then you will bring glory to the Lord and you will find joy. Now let's think through just for a few minutes. We've got a few minutes left. Let's think through how some of these things could apply to your life. I've already said one of them. If you're married, you should stay married. That's the teaching of Christ. Here's the second truth, and this is going to be difficult. If you are struggling in your marriage, if you are contemplating divorce, if you are in the middle of divorce, according to this teaching, you need to reconcile with your spouse and to work as hard as you can to fix that marriage. That's hard, I know. That's hard because I've had conversations with people that are right there. I've had conversations with people that say something like this. You just don't understand. My marriage is hopeless. And they'll begin to ask questions like this. Don't you think I deserve to be happy? Don't you think I deserve to find someone that I can love? Don't you think I deserve to be compatible with my spouse? Here's what I think first and foremost. I think above all things we should be concerned with our holiness. And I think we should be concerned with seeking Christ first. And I will make one simple promise to you, and I'll stand by this promise. If both you and your spouse will honestly seek the Lord in all things, your marriage will be healed. I promise you that. You've seen it happen. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you know of stories where it's happened. But the problem in so many marriages is that one spouse or the other or sometimes both are not interested at all in the things of the Lord. They're interested in what they want. And they're awfully selfish. And they can't figure out why this marriage won't work. Let me just remind you of a truth in the scripture. When you don't think that Christ can heal your marriage. If Jesus Christ can raise the dead. Don't you think he can heal your marriage? 
If Jesus Christ can walk on the water, don't you think he can heal your marriage? If Jesus Christ can ascend to the right hand of the Father and be given dominion over all things, don't you think he can heal your marriage? I just want to encourage you, no matter where you are in that process, it's not too late. I would encourage you to read some books if you're struggling, to get some counseling if you're struggling. We've got a marriage conference coming up here, I think, next weekend. A lot of you are signed up. You ought to go to that. Whether you're struggling or not, you ought to go to that. We should always seek to strengthen our marriages. But I just want to encourage you, no matter where you are in this process, it's not too late. The problem isn't that Jesus can't heal your marriage. The problem nine times out of ten is that you've made up your mind that it's over and so you stop trying. I want to encourage you, Christ can heal your marriage. Now, I've got a few minutes left. I want to do something a little bit different to finish up. I've talked about marriage. I've talked about the biblical picture of marriage, the importance of marriage, staying married, working through difficult situations no matter what they are. But I want to end this morning by kind of speaking to our students and our children. I know some of you guys are younger. You're not anywhere close to marriage. I get that. We have singles that are in college that are a little bit closer. And so I want to give you some practical advice thinking through what marriage ought to look like. Because I want to promise you something, parents, adults, grandparents. Society has got one model of marriage. And they are going to be talking to your kids about what that ought to look like. And the media and the movies and the television shows and the music and internet and all the things that our students are exposed to have one definition of marriage. The Bible oftentimes has a very different definition. And if you don't think somebody's already having the conversation with your kids, you need to wake up. I think as often as we can, we need to speak truth in the lives of our kids. So here are four very practical things you need to do. If you are single, if you've never been married, if you're young, if you're contemplating marriage one day, here are four things. Number one, seek godly advice. Now I'm going to say something that's going to be staggering to teenagers. (laughs) Your parents aren't that dumb after all. I know that's confusing for you to understand. I know it's hard for you to grasp that truth. But your parents actually have a few things figured out, believe it or not. You can, you can attest to this, adults. The older you get, the wiser old people seem, right? The wiser your parents are. It makes more sense what they used to say. See, adults have been through this. We've made all these mistakes that we don't want you to have to make. And so when we give you advice, when we give you godly advice, I want to encourage you to listen You've been given this great opportunity. You've got several years before you have to worry about marriage. Use that time wisely. Seek the Lord. Listen to godly advice. Prepare your hearts for marriage because it's going to be one of the biggest decisions you're ever going to make. And how many of us know people that have made a bad decision in marriage and it affected them years down the road? We know, right? Maybe it was us. So students, I encourage you to seek godly advice. Here's a second piece of advice I'd give you. Your actions now will have consequences later. Adults, amen? We have this mindset when we're young, and guess what? I had it when I was young. You had it when you were young. We have the mindset that we're bulletproof, first of all, and secondly, it doesn't matter what we do now, we can kind of fix it later, right? (laughs) The old phrase we used to use, I'm not sure what they say now, we're going to sow the wild oats, right? We're going to do all this stuff and have all this fun and party and live our life the way we want to live it, and one day we're going to settle down. I just want to encourage you, as hard as this is to understand, As hard as this might be to believe, your actions one day will have consequences. And the damage you do now can affect you for years and years to come. Here's the third piece of advice. Take your time and seek the Lord. 
I would encourage you students not to rush into anything. I know for some of you, you're in middle school. You're like, I don't even like girls yet. Why are you having to tell me this, right? One day you will. I promise, okay? And when you find the one that's right, it's going to be very enticing for you to rush right into that, to get very involved with that person, physically, emotionally, whatever that looks like. I want to encourage you, first of all, to take your time, to slow down. But on top of all that, I want to encourage you to seek the Lord. You know, I think a lot of students hear this idea of staying pure and seeking the Lord, and they have this mindset that Christianity is just about a bunch of rules. It's about a bunch of rules that are boring and lame, and I don't have to follow them. Here's the truth. God has got a perfect plan for you. He's got a beautiful plan for your life. And he can look decades down the road and see where he wants you to be. And he says, you know, I've got a life of love and happiness and joy and fulfillment. If you'll just follow me, if you'll just seek me, if you'll just listen to my truth and don't be distracted by the things the world offers. Because if you'll listen to Christ, if you'll seek him, he'll lead you exactly where you need to go. Don't waste your time chasing the things of the world. Seek Christ instead. And number four, as we finish up. Use your time of being single to grow in your walk with Christ. You have an incredible gift, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a college student, whether you're a young adult. When you're single, you've got a gift. You've got a lot of additional time that you're not going to have in the future. Just think about students. You have an entire summer off every year. Think about the mission work you can do every summer. You go live in Africa for two months, right? You go to Romania for six weeks. You can go to China and smuggle Bibles across the border. Your parents will be afraid. They'll be scared to death. But the Lord calls you to do it. You can go. You can live a life of excitement and adventure following the Lord. Because you've been given this gift. You've been given this time. You need to seek the Lord while he may be found. I want to finish with this idea. Marriage is a gift from God, but it's not easy, right? We know it's a struggle. We know it's hard. We know it's not easy. We know it requires hard work and prayer and patience and understanding and forgiveness and on and on the list goes. And in a world that screams at us, it's okay to get divorced. It's okay to sleep around. It's okay to make these mistakes. It's okay to do these things. Christ very quietly says, your marriage can work. There is hope for you. There is grace I've got a plan for your life. If you will seek me, follow me, trust me, if you will live your life upside down from what the world says, you will be blessed. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the truth, Lord, that is sometimes very difficult for us to understand or sometimes very difficult for us to live by. And Father, I just pray for those in this congregation right now that are struggling in one of these areas, whatever it looks like, Father. I just pray for peace upon them right now. I pray for grace and for mercy. Lord, I pray you would remind them that there is forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that wherever they've been from this moment forward, whatever mistakes they've made from this moment forward, Lord, they draw a line in the sand. I'm going to live my life for you. I'm going to put you first in my marriage. I'm going to put you first in my relationships. I'm going to put you first in school. I'm going to put you first in the decisions that I make. Lord, I'm going to seek you in all things in my life. And Father, I pray that when we begin to do that, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would use us in mighty and powerful ways for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen. You can stand. I'm going to give you the opportunity to to pray. Again, we've kind of tried to include some prayer time in our invitation. If you want to come and kneel at the altar, if you want to pray right from where you are, if you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.